0: welcome back to another episode of this is not the way my name is chris thomas i am here on my own no courtney this episode Uh, partly because there is no power where courtney lives He lives up in the hills, in the mountains of Melbourne. Uh, Well, they're not really that big. Let's call them large hills. And we had one of the worst storms come through Melbourne in many, many decades. But of course, with climate change, we say this every second year. The worst floods. This is the worst fire. But it is the worst storm in the last four years. And basically, the wind ripped down everything. So power has been out for about 500,000 people in Victoria last week. Um, I think that's already back down to 10 or so thousand now, but he reports that he still doesn't have power where he lives. Um, They also didn't have water because trees ripped out the mains pipes. So we're talking about very big old, probably oak trees uh, that, they put on the footpath and they've actually damaged the water main so everyone's lost water as well hopefully his water is back on so yeah he can't stop me from ranting about anything i want to rant about including my uh, new soundboard as well One I quite like that's that's called the Undertaker. So, on the power issue, it's, a, it's an interesting one because already it's brought up a lot of conversation. Why aren't our power lines underground? And there are some suburbs in Melbourne uh, built much more in recent times where power lines have gone underground, but of course, we're not talking about local power lines here, we're talking about the 500 kilovolt. Uh, very large, I think they're 30, 40 metres high power lines, and a number of them not far north of Geelong in a place called Anarchy literally just collapsed last week. They they called it some sort of a a downdraft where the storm actually pushes an enormous amount of air to the ground, and then, of course, it hits the ground and goes sideways, but it actually caused them to, to buckle. And so... The network is about 65,000 kilometres of transmission lines across the state. We only lost a small amount, but, of course, they're major lines and they cut um, power to a lot of areas. And so, yeah, people, they're up and down. They're saying we we should go underground, but here's the problem. We are looking at probably, for Victoria, around $160 billion to put the transmission line network Underground, uh, the estimates are that increase our power bills by more than two thousand dollars a year for the next forty years. So it's put the political cap on. How on earth would you sell that to the public? Well, you couldn't, and why should you? It actually is not a viable option. Sometimes it's okay to say that that is just too expensive. We're not uh, we're not talking about just a, a tunnel network that we're building for new transport. Links in Melbourne, we we're not just talking about getting rid of uh, railway crossings. Th- that is a huge amount of money. It is quite hard to justify, it. but it doesn't mean that we don't come up with what's called redundancy plans, other ways so that that people can get power back more quickly when these supposedly you know freak events that happen now once every two years occur, and that and that's what's got to happen. Um, not only in our state, but our country, and you can see across the world. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about northern states in in the U.S. that have, you know, winters now that are so cold and so dangerous that you have people freezing to death in their cars when there's accidents on the interstates, or whether we're whether we're talking about the the drought in Africa, um, or whether we're talking about the fact that there's the water bowl. The Artesian Basin in Spain is pretty much gone. They have pretty much drained it, and now there's not even enough water for olives, right? So there's a shortage of olives, and there's all there's also organised crime stealing olive olive trees, as you would do, I guess, if olives suddenly become the the most sought after asset that you can get your hands on. What else have we got this week? Oh, Tay Tay, Tay Tay has been in town, and uh, she's she's amazing. She is one hell of a promoter and a clever woman with her marketing. Um, and so the the people with their friendship bands were out in the hundreds of thousands going to Tay Tay concerts. And of course Tay Tay attended the Super Bowl, so I watched part of the Super Bowl. And I forgot, as I should know better. I went to University of Tennessee a long, long, long time ago. And so I do know something about the game of American football or gridiron and i am aware that it is one of the most boring sports that you can watch especially if you're watching it live because even then you don't have ad breaks even then it's just it is just so slow there are whatever 11 people on the field per team and then there's another 22 people on the sidelines just standing there waiting for their their 15 seconds of play that they do three times in a game that goes on for hours So yeah, if you didn't watch it, you didn't miss anything there. This week, our favourite report writing person, Alan Fells, has produced another one with his mate Rod Sims. And this one is all about competition um, during the COVID crisis, but then post what's happened with the pandemic and the supply chain crunch that we've had. Uh, Raw material costs rising, but who is gouging the average Australian consumer and on what. Um, so, this time, I'm not really talking about petrol because we get gouged on that every week anyway. This time, the focus was uh, on a few different industries, but grocery came up the most. Our friends at Coles and Woolworths. And I always find this weird it, it, that the report is going to be politicised because it was um, commissioned by the ACTU. Uh, and so, it, It's always going to be taken by uh, members of the opposition at the moment as to be something that is staged in a sense. But, of course, what it says is what we've always known. So we just come back around this circle again of, oh, yeah, here's a report that says, hmm, having a duopoly means that, hmm, you don't have as much competition and that, hmm, the customer gets screwed. Well, duh. The, the, the overall problem, as it's always been, is that we say that we're in an open market and, and that we, uh, we enable everyone to compete, but of course we don't. And as it's always been, even where I live, I have a Kmart that's been empty for years. And you say, well, so what? Well, it's empty because they will not allow anybody else, i.e. any sort of competitor, to take that space. All right, I have two Coles in my local plaza. We actually call it the Good Coles and the Shit Coles. The Shit Coles uh, used to be what was called Buy low so that was a discount supermarket that was at that stage owned by Coles Group. Once low they decided to get rid of it as a brand. Well, they're not going to just let that piece of real estate be used by any competitor. So they put in another coal. So we have two coals that are, I don't know, 85 meters apart from each other. All right. And it's a bit of a joke in our area, but the underlying issue is actually one that leads completely to this point of, oh yeah, we get charged an enormous amount. Um, These companies Make the money, return it into our super funds so that they love to say that there's a circle, just like the miners go, that there's a beautiful circle. These riches come back to you. But it, it, it doesn't work, not just because of the consumer, but also the suppliers. And today's news article, they talked about how a supplier had to pay, uh, in inverted commas, a rebate in order to get through a price rise increase. Of course, that is a way of these grocery companies getting around some actually fairly strong laws about the fact that you can't um, you can't just do that to suppliers, but they do every single day. They say, "Well, we can't get your increase through unless you pay a certain amount of money for inverted commas promotional activities," and that might be end of uh, end of aisle type stuff but it's a a crock of shit. It is just a fee that you pay in order to have the price increased and the people that pay for it are, of course, us. The the supermarket just makes even more out of that. So it's one of those, yes, we know this, and maybe the average punter doesn't, but the majority of us actually know what's going on. So what? Until we enable some sort of, of a market that allows more competition, it will be exactly the same forever. After after I briefly read it, I shrugged my shoulders because um, this this is back to public policy. This is back to what we want to think of as actual competition in an industry, in a market. And most of us pretty quickly will just slip back to, well, how the hell do I shop even cheaper at Coles or Woolies? But of course, they're going to do that to you. Uh, Alexei Navalny, he passed away this week. We'll never know how, but we all know why. And uh, so that's that's nice and convenient for our favorite Russian president before he goes into the next election, which is Vladimir versus nobody. Nothing new there. Uh, King's got cancer. In fact, it's all actually happening in 2024. It's... Um that's pretty nuts. I did have you know, one thing on the on the war. I don't talk about wars that much. I've purposely avoided talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. A, because I'm definitely not an expert, and B, because whatever I say um, is going to always cause, I don't know, more tension and more conflict, and that's not my in- my intention, I suppose. Although it is absolutely tragic. So give me one more episode, and I will have my opinion about that. But just an interesting one, the other night I was talking with a friend and the the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the fact that the war hasn't exactly turned one way or the other. It's pretty much in a stalemate. And uh, the, the, the Russians are accused of sending what we call cannon, cannon fodder. And I guess the term cannon fodder simply means that you're not trained um, or trained very poorly you're sent to the front line you're given a weapon that's not going to be nearly sufficient to either hurt the enemy or protect yourself and then basically you you're sent over the top like they said in world war one and you're going to get slaughtered but you do it wave after wave and i guess the idea is that you you wear down the the opposition not only by making no doubt you know five meters of ground and then 10 meters of ground but also psychologically that that people are actually firing at at others who have got no hope and killing and killing and killing, yes, but that doesn't make, I can imagine, all the Ukraine frontline army personnel extremely happy that they're just mowing down Russian soldiers who they know are not soldiers and have been pulled out of prisons, have been pulled out of rural areas, anywhere where they um, were not able to threaten uh, the Russian government either with any protests but the the point made, which is a good one, is that your people think, oh, it's it's been going quite bad for for Russia and for Putin, and that all these people are dying. And it's a lot of people dying. And my friend said, remember World War Two, you know, the horrible Holocaust and what occurred in Western Europe, and we were talking about uh, six eight million Jewish people in World War Two. The Soviet Union lost around somewhere between 23 to 25 million people. Of those military deaths, probably close to 11 million, maybe 12. There's never going to be an exact figure. A staggering amount. So, so much more than what other countries experienced. And the thing, the point here is that this is part of the culture the, the culture of, of Russia has, you know, a bit of Chekhov in it. And Chekhov wrote about, in, in this very dry, serbic uh, wit, about the misery of living in Russia, about how tough life was, about how when you think you've made two steps forward, it actually quickly becomes five steps back. And that no matter what you do, there will always be hurdles and there will always be pits that will sort of catch you out, and he, you know he did it with amazing humour. If you if you like that kind of writing, but the the point is is really important that for Russians they in some ways why would they rise up against their leader over a war like this and a lot of people being sent to senseless deaths when this is actually part of their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Of history and it's not just even just Stalin and the second world war it goes a long way way back so to them sometimes depending on where you live in Russia as well it's not much different whether you stay where you are working the land or whether you go off and get some money fighting somewhere which you'll know nothing about or what's going to happen to you but the history of that country is staggering in terms of how many people get killed in conflicts and so you do have to build that in to their psyche into the way that they approach something like this war where unfortunately and this is the tragic part they will just keep putting more and more people in and the Russian public will keep accepting this yes they control the narrative with the media but at the same time it is actually part of their culture and The country goes on and it rebuilds and the same thing will happen after this. I have no idea what's going to happen in the next 12 months. I think, unfortunately, it's going to be just more of a geopolitical war, more stalemate, more waiting on money for ammunition to to fire at the enemy for very little land to be gained. So many cities have already been bombed to the ground. But Putin is not stupid and he knows that he can keep providing at least humans to the war more and more and more. And so that is this longer-term tactic of wearing down probably everybody, wearing down the West in terms of their support and what they want to provide for this proxy war. Yes, well, that was uh, that was not exactly the most um, amazing, happy conversation, so sorry about that. I don't really know what sound effect you would um, you would even give for that. Okay, my sound effect board really isn't um, isn't that amazing. Uh, who could we play that one for? Um, Barnaby Joyce. Wow, good old Barnaby. And so, uh, Barnaby Joyce is found lying on his back drunk as a skunk, still talking on the phone in Canberra just last week. And again, interesting in the, the news coverage or the social media coverage. So a lot of people very vitriolic about the journalist who has taken the video and uh, walked past and sort of left Barnaby where he was, lying on his back on the concrete. Now, um, I'm pretty sure from that the footage, he's actually on the phone. So he's not, you know, he, he hasn't passed out completely. He has not, you know, uh, thrown up, vomited on himself. He doesn't have an airway that's blocked. He He's, he's just off his nana. And, it, you know, some people saying this is not in the public interest. Well, you know what? You're a member of parliament and sure, you can go out and drink. Sure, you can go out and get drunk. It's probably not that great if you are then in your suit, rolling around on the Canberra concrete without sort of realising just what sort of state you're in. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Barnaby because it pretty sure that the Nats cannot contain Barnaby. He, he is too powerful. But also uh, I've had people say to me that Barnaby Joyce cost the Liberal Party probably three seats at the last election. And what I mean by that is he is unpopular with a large part of the electorate. And people, especially with a personality that gets into the news, that says some pretty nutty things, let alone whatever personal stuff has been going on in his life, even just his response to policy. Some people love it. He's very um, straight down the line. He's very raw. You don't get the feeling, I think, or some people don't, that you're being bullshitted on the other hand. Someone like me, he comes across as a massive bullshit artist. But that's part of being a politician. But yeah, it costs the, the libs maybe three seats in people going, I don't like this sort of character in this idea of a coalition. Um, that's going to hurt, man. And they won't be able to shift him. So yeah, go Barnaby. Let's, um, let's see what he's up to next month. Okay. What more can I do? Probably at this stage, I've realized that podcasting on your own is quite difficult and that you do need somebody else to talk to. And there's only so many sound buttons on a soundboard that you can press before that becomes very boring very quickly. Uh, We have not discussed the US election because, oh, could we just leave it for a little bit longer? So, yeah, what a broken country, completely broken and Courtney had said that I would talk about John Rawls, and I will. Maybe that is one I can do on my own. But um, let me think of the right way to say it, and in the right language that's easy to understand, because his book, oh, it, it's a bit dense. And it's way too long. It goes on and on and on. And I'll be honest, I skim read uh, largest chunks of it, and it gets a bit jargony towards the end. But I get the point of what he's he's trying to get across um and perhaps there, there is something in it to me that's interesting about this idea of a sense of justice which or really a sense of fairness so i will do another short episode on that so you get an idea of this particular gentleman and this particular angle on political philosophy so for now um thanks for being with me for another episode all right bye for now